The information on this podcast is not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. All information contained on or related to this podcast is for general information purposes only. again. Hi, Chantel. Hey, Elisa. We're back with Dr. Vivian Huang, who we spoke to in an earlier episode. Yeah. Uh, she spoke about, she's post-op. And Absolutely, she, eight weeks. Yeah, and she spoke to us about... Um, Her IBD journey. Yeah, which was a long one. Which we're, we're really pre-internet lucky. journey. Yeah, <laughs> pre-Dr. Google. And we're really lucky to have her back today, you know, especially speaking to us from the perspective of us as doctor now, as yes. GI doctor. Yeah. Um, She's not only the president, as I said, <laughs> of Crohn's and colitis. She's also a client. She's just, that's it. That's what she is. So, um, you know, one thing that was really interesting that we're going to talk about on this podcast is um, Dr. Huang's focus on preconception, pregnancy, and postpartum in women who have IBD, which is... I don't know anything about it. It's a giant topic. And it's because I, it's not there. I, uh, yeah, I know very little about it except what I experienced when I was pregnant. That's right. Um, already having so the uh, fact that my she's, Crohn's diagnosis and post-op. Yeah, the fact that she's taken on this as her area, where her area of expertise is going to be, means a lot for the future of IBD. It sure does, You know, yeah. especially in women, you know, it's a big question for me about children and things like that. I'm so I'm going to get some great answers. It's going to be today. a great episode. Okay, let's right. do it. Let's do it. Okay, so Dr. Wang, we're here, and I, I want to start with talking about um, your focus, which is is very interesting and unique. Your focus on, you know, women surrounding pregnancy, before pregnancy, during pregnancy, after pregnancy, who have IBD. So so what does that look like for you right now? What's that? What's happening? Um, so I'm trying to set up um, the preconception and pregnancy IBD clinical research program here in Toronto, uh, and it will have... Well, I'm already seeing women now like, uh, to give them uh, counseling and advice regarding uh, whether they can get pregnant with IBD and then what medications they can take and how IBD disease activity can affect their uh, pregnancy or not affect their pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And it kind of came about uh, when I was doing my IBD fellowship, even before that actually, we started realizing that there's a gap in healthcare um, in the way healthcare is provided for women with chronic diseases and also what's known about um, IBD in pregnancy. So what I mean is that there's this concept, and it's still out there, um, that women with IBD, maybe they can't have children, right? And a lot of women actually would say, like in cer- it has been published now in surveys, and even in my own uh, uh, IBD fellowship project, I surveyed women with IBD, and a lot of them said, like, they're afraid. They're afraid. They're afraid. Like, can I have children? First Will of I all, pass it to my Will children? I pass it to my child? Um, you know, I don't want my child to grow up having IBD as well. Um, you know, I heard all these bad things about medications. You can't take medications and all this. Or stuff. certain medications right. that could be harmful to the baby. Right. So then, some of that is, is true, but you know, then you take it into context and, and work your way through it. But other things, they're basing their decisions possibly on incorrect. Stuff that they found on the internet or, or other things. And so I, I saw that gap, and other people have been looking into this too, and we're trying to find better ways to provide information for women with IBD and their families and other healthcare providers as well 
to help guide them to make the decisions that they want to make regarding whether to have kids or not. And so that's why it's actually a preconception and pregnancy and postpartum clinic. Because but that's super important, though, because I'm a female, right. you know, and I don't have children, nor do I, is that my life for me? I, I don't think I want to be a mother. Um, but even with that thought, knowing that I don't want to have children, has this, has having IBD affected me 100%, you know, in terms of solidifying my decision? And like you said, like, what is it based on? No, no doctor has told me really. I've had a few doctors in terms of, depending on, I've had parts where I've been so malnourished and so ill for such a long period of time that like, no, I could not grow a baby in a healthy way whatsoever because I'm barely managing my body myself, you know? Like there's different times, but I think that's an interesting topic to get into. And Crohn's and ulcerative colitis really affect gender like it's really like almost like a 50 50 split really right. like it's not like it's attacking mostly men or mostly women no, it's, it's right split yeah. down the center and it's actually affecting people younger and younger so yeah um, we now know like more and more kids are getting ibd so that means that they're going to have ibd when they're dating or thinking about having their own families and, so I, and getting diagnosed in universities seems to be right. like a like how do you deal with that? Yeah. You know? Like how, how, how does one... And then you meet someone right, and exactly. you're like, when I graduate, I'm gonna, my next step is I'm going to start a family. I'm right. going to get married and I'm going to start a family. But how do I start a family if I'm... If you don't know how, like, if you don't have the right information and stuff, right? So, so. while being the doctor, a doctor at, at Mount Sinai Hospital, you're also, this is the study that you're putting up on the side. You're so it's, it's part of, so when I was in Edmonton as a fellow, I started the um, pregnancy clinic there. Um, and I kind of grew it from there. So, so in that pregnancy clinic, I saw women who were pregnant, um, women who were considering pregnancy and wanted more information. Right. And so their gastroenterologists or family doctors would refer to me and I would spend extra time going through all the available evidence and try to turn it into more understandable terms. Lay um, terms. Lay terms <laughs> for them. Um, and then I was also very interested in studying the uh, impact or the effect of a mother's inflammation and or the medications that she may be taking during pregnancy or during breastfeeding, for example, on the developing fetus and then the infant. Because a couple of years ago was when we all started learning how important uh, microbiome is or how important um, uh, the, the time in gestation or pregnancy and the first three years of life, how that can affect the rest of your life. Like, like people are starting to learn that in other diseases. So if you're looking at inflammation, do you think this could be across the board in terms of like this could be rheumatoid arthritis related, yes. this could be lupus and psoriasis and all of these yeah. other types of autoimmune or inflammatory I diseases? I do. Because inflammation is inflammation. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and it actually it's very ironic that what sparked me to really then set up the clinic more and like study that more um, with sampling and stuff was actually a respirologist, so a lung doctor, mm -hmm. a pediatric lung doctor. I found out about their study that they were studying whether um, the first couple years of life and the pregnancy um, course of the pregnancy affected a child's risk of developing asthma and allergy and, wow. and stuff. And I said, whoa, that's interesting. And then they were studying the, the, the stool of the infants whether the infant was being breastfed or not breastfed and whether the stool had different bacteria in it and how that affected the risk of developing asthma. And that was a couple of years ago. So I went to go meet with him. I said, that is so cool. I said, why are you not studying about IBD? Like you're studying the stool, like stool is Absolutely. the gut, right? And they weren't. And they said, that's, that's a good idea, they said. Um, and then they've already published now about obesity. So they've, they've learned that 
um, a child's or a person's risk of becoming obese later in life has something to do with the mi the microbiome in their first couple years and, and stuff. I know I've read like conflicting sources about breastfeeding versus not exactly. breastfeeding. Exactly, and the like... risk of IBD and stuff. Exactly. Right, so there's right. there's a few things that we still don't really know 100%. Is does being born by a vaginal delivery versus C-section affect your risk of well, that's getting That's not because I was C-section. Exactly. So, yeah. and so my, what I've been studying and what I've been learning in my like initial pilot studies, and there's now other studies that are looking at this too. So Dr. Columbell in the States has what he calls a meconium study, and they're studying the microbiome of, of children or babies born to moms with IBD and healthy moms. Um, and what we're starting to realize is that it's probably not one thing. It's probably not, okay, you're born this way, or you were breastfed, or you it's come a from this, it's a combination. So if you've heard of the GEM study. Yes, of course, right? I was going to say, I'm, I'm assuming exactly. you're doing this and you're involved yeah, in the GEM so, study somehow. So we actually had um, a mom, Sherry, on here, and she has two two boys who have Crohn's disease. Um, they're both being seen at SickKids right now. One of them is moving out into Mount Sinai Hospital, but they're a part of the GEM study, and she had talked about how intricate that becomes. And her one son, when he was diagnosed, they put the younger son in the study was not diagnosed. Right. He was diagnosed while in under the study. The study. Yes. So they had yeah. healthy and which is vital information yeah. to have. Yeah. Like, so so I called my study and I said to Dr. Couture, who leads the gem study, I said to him, I said, it's a baby gem. And I said, what that means is he, his study is looking, they enroll like age six and older. Yes, yes. Um, so like he said, the, the siblings of people with Crohn's or their first degree relatives that don't yet have Crohn's and they follow to see who develops it. So I said to him, I said, well, if all this... Mothers and their babies. Right. If all this stuff is now showing that it's the first couple of years of life that's affecting, that could affect someone... We're looking too late. Then we're looking too late. And then I said... And why is IBD getting more, like why is there more and more IBD around the world? So people who never had IBD are getting it. So it's something to do with diet, they all said and all this. So I said, it's not just genetics, it's not environment, it's not microbiome, it's like a combination. But then what sequence of events leads to IBD? Right. So, so immigrants that immigrate to Canada are getting IBD. First generation. Right, first yeah. generation born are getting IBD. So clearly it's gotta be something earlier in life. And, and so what, I, what I've always wanted to study and, and sort of am in these small pilot studies is the mom's impact. So a healthy mom and mom with IBD, you know, what's going on in the pregnancy? How does that affect the kids? And you may not be able to find out right away because obviously you don't get IBD till like four, five, six years old or right. older, but can we find something earlier like different microbiome in these kids already can we find that you know and can we figure it out can before? we figure it out before can we see whether or not the medications people are taking like is that doing something to the whole the, antibiotic the argument yeah right and, I, and and it will be a it will take a long time i think to get an answer but no this stuff know, doesn't happen overnight <laughs> it's like you have to follow these and kids and all that right and years and years but, but one thing that that i actually already uh, one of my students already presented at cddw this year was that during pregnancy, the health-related quality of life um, is lower in pregnant women with IBD who have active disease, like flare. So I was actually, Lisa and I were talking about this. Like, we sometimes hear pregnant women, women with IBD when they get pregnant. Now, this could be UC-specific or Crohn-specific, or it could just be a total myth that we're just hearing. But, like, for example, I had a teacher in, in, in um, high school who had UC. Um, and I remember her mentioning it, but I don't remember it. And it wasn't until later on in my life when I was diagnosed that I went back to her and I was like, hey, I think you have the disease I do. 
but I'm not sure. But she had said her best time, mm. her healthiest time in terms of active disease was when she was pregnant. Yeah, so like, that's is this a, is this a true. trend? For some people, it's true, but for some people, it's not. Like, some people flare during pregnancy, and right. other people so get Right, so this better. is not like a... a Isn't, that's, it's just, yeah. it's, it's individual. And that's why I think people used to just brush it off and say, okay, like, oh, congratulations, you're pregnant, we'll see you later. So it's not true that once you get pregnant, your disease is going to go no, away for and, and it's <laughs> kind of like the general observation is that if you are truly in remission when you get pregnant, you're, you're probably going to stay in remission and do well, but if you are having active disease when you're pregnant, you know, there's a possibility that you might get better, but then there's also a good chance that you'll stay active or get worse. While you're pregnant. So that's why the preconception part is so important is to try to like make, make sure, sure that, that you're, you're on, you're, you're 100% healthy, you're in remission. So, you know, for our listeners who are pro thinking like, you know, our female listeners, oh my goodness, like I cannot get pregnant. That is not what we're saying here. It's totally possible and fine. But I would think that that would be like any anything though, any chronic illness or any illness like getting pregnant when you're ill, when you're not at your best. Right. Yeah. You know, when you're about to grow a human. You need to be healthy. You need the to mom be healthy. needs to be as healthy as possible. Mom needs to be healthy, to be healthy yeah. you know, we're, and there's so much literature out there and it's very common knowledge now what you should and should not be doing while you're pregnant. And this of, is the other thing. So yeah. some people would rather they they continue smoking because oh, they've oh. always smoked. But yet they, they say, no, I don't want to take whatever medication to keep my IBD under control because it might affect the baby. So then I sit there and I said, but you're, but you're smoking. smoking. And don't you know that smoking is like one of the, the worst, worst things? And, and so to me, it's just very There's a dis fascinating. You know disconnect. what it is? It's, it's an ignorance in knowledge. It's a disconnect and yeah, an ignorance in knowledge. It's totally an yeah. ignorance in knowledge. Like, we don't know. Yeah. We, you know, we don't know. There's a total disconnect there. So what you're doing is huge, obviously, even though it's, like you said, a long haul. It may take, <laughs> yeah, the, <laughs> take research, the research and finding the cure or prevention for IBD, that will come down. But I think what's back. comforting is that you have found, as a female, which is a very strong, you know, girl power all the yeah. way, you have found a gap. Mm -hmm. You have found a need here, and it's 50% of the population with IBD. Yeah, it's, it truly is. It is, it's, and it's with you for life. So, yeah. So you need to. That's why a lot of what I do actually is educate the patients in my clinics. Um, I guess in the olden days or whatever, it used to be a very hierarchical, patriarch, whatever. Yeah. The way medicine was like you, the doctor would tell the patient, "You do this." And it was like, "Yes, master." Right? Yeah. But yeah. that's not the way it is now, and it's because a lot of it is you have to educate. So both like the physicians, the nurses, the healthcare providers, but then the patient, the families have to be informed and educated so that they can make a decision and then feel comfortable about that decision. Well, diseases like IBD as well are so individualized. So even if you if you are a GI specialist and you know everything about it, if you are a GI who has Crohn's disease or yeah, yeah, and you know everything about it, someone's going to walk in who has symptoms different than yours, who reacts yeah, to totally. food differently than yours, like whatever the case may be. You got to listen. Yeah. So talk to us about your P4, this P4 medicine, which you've, you know, you've oh, enlightened yeah. me that it's been around for a while, but clearly I'm not a doctor, so well, I have no I idea. Feel, yeah, I first heard it from Dr. Hood. I guess he might be the one who coined it it's um so the four p's are like um can you predict uh, can you pred prediction so can you predict who's going to get a disease or what's mm -hmm. what's happening and then you can prevent it so prediction prevention and then personalize so personalize meaning either you can personalize the, the diagnosis test like or the test that you're going to use to diagnose or predict or the treatment strategies and stuff which is key for IBD right? I feel. yes and then the last p is participatory so on the part of bringing in the patient exactly so 
you can you can tell someone to do stuff, but if they're not going to participate and follow along or you know be part of it, take an it active doesn't role. work, right? So with IBD, I think. Um, Especially in the pregnancy, the preconception of pregnancy, you, that has to be there. Like, can we prov can we predict that that woman is going to flare or not? That's one of the things I'm trying to figure out. Because if we can, then we can try to prevent her from flaring. Maybe we can risk stratify that woman during preconception, and I can tell her, like, based on your tests and all this, you have a high likelihood that you m are going to flare. So we need to do something about it before you become pregnant. Before you get to that point, right? And then yeah. um, personalize. So depending what medication she's on, or you know, has she been pregnant before? All those kind of things. What other do things need to be changed? Right? She might have other problems. She might have um, diabetes on top of or things or whatever. Or, yeah. Right. So it has to be personalized and then participatory. Meaning, so for me, when I set up pregnancy clinic and when people come, I actually put them into a kind of a scheduled visits. Even if they feel great, I still want still them to come, to come back. So I always try to see them um, early each trimester, so at least three times. Um, and then in, if they're still preconception, I usually see them like four to six months. But you're also looking for something that they might not be noticing as well. Like if you're thinking yeah. about the preventative part, yes. they might think they're fine. They come exactly. in and start saying, yeah, I'm just, you ask a couple questions. Oh, yeah, just this, this. And then it's like, whoa. Right. So, like, so the, 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 the catch with that is in pregnancy, Okay, so our scores, we have clinical scores that we ask people or questions that we ask as, as physicians like to gauge whether their IBD is active or not. But the questions we ask are like, how many bowel movements are you having? Um, standard. Right, standard. Is there blood in your stool? Is there blood Do you in your have stool? mucus? How are oh, your stools formed? What do they look like? Yeah, because you know you a picture. But when you're pregnant, especially if it's the first pregnancy, you can, the women can have hemorrhoids, and that will cause a bleeding. They could have constipation, diarrhea because of the changes in the hormones. They could have nausea and vomiting from so just all these things. Are just right, so, so, like, you can't tell. A lot of times, you can't tell if it's the IBD or the pregnancy. pregnancy. The blood tests. So, one of the blood tests we use is C-reactive protein (CRP). Yes, yes. Um, most most gastroenterologists will order that on a regular basis. Which is your basis. inflammation, essentially. Yes, but yeah. here's the other catch. So. About a third or more of IBD patients don't make a CRP, so you can have horrible inflammation and your blood marker will be normal. And yet, in pregnancy, it can go up normally. So, because pregnancy is sort of inflammatory, right? You have a you have a baby in there that's half mom, half dad. So, right, right. So it's a, it's a foreign. It's a foreign. It's foreign. <laughs> it's foreign. So, so that uh, pregnant woman can have a slightly high CRP just because she's pregnant. And then if she's having some bowel symptoms. You're like, so do I change her IBD meds or not? And then as a physician, we're like, well, the gold standard is we scope, but we ideally try not to scope. We can scope, and it is safe if you do it properly in pregnancy, but ideally you try not to. So then you're trying to find like better ways to monitor and, like you said, predict who's going to flare or tell who's going to flare without scoping. And one of the tests, which unfortunately is not widely available, is the stool test, so fecal calprotectin. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, what I mean by not widely available is the government doesn't cover it. So whoever's listening, if they're in the government, make sure you cover this for everybody. The people I've done a few of those. Yeah. Mailed right to my house. Yes, yeah, so you, if you're <laughs> in a biologic program, so if you're on the biological medications, um, those patient support programs cover it, and they will right mail it for you and all this. Yeah. If you have private insurance, they usually will cover it. But if you don't, then you would have to pay for it. It's and not cheap. It's, it depends on which lab is what I've heard, because Ontario is kind of 
Yeah, we like are just ex yeah, there's Baxter different Center. labs and yeah. different hospital systems. So in Edmonton, where I trained, we also didn't have it at first, but then we got it. The government covered it. Oh. And then we were able to order it for all our patients, right? And so this is the one thing that still bugs me about but the Canadian health system. that must be giving you guys like research and information that you would have never have known. Exactly. So it's research and information, but it's better for clinical care if we can have access to the same test that our other patients can have access to. Just because someone is on a biologic and in a biologic program gets access to special tests, but those tests are widely known to be useful. And like you right? said, IB, like you went to the pedi like the pediatricians and you were like, you're studying stool, why aren't you looking at IBD? Like if you're taking yes. pills, it should just go right hand in hand. If you have IBD, you should just be able to do stool. So <laughs> that's easy. From, <laughs> they can get that from babies. It's so easy, right? Just get their diapers or whatever. Yeah, it's super anyway. easy. Yeah, so that's why, that's why like my clinical, and then I added this research because I realized that there's these questions that we can try to answer along the way. They're not answered yet. Right? And the moms would always bring their babies back afterwards. So I was like, oh, yeah. And then the moms would ask me, so like, what's the chance of my baby going to get IBD? And I'm like, oh, gosh. It's like... Well, actually, that was something, too, Lisa and I were talking about. You know, Lisa, having been diagnosed as, you know, at 12, she was, was very young, and since then, she, Lisa's a mom, so she's, and she's had surgery, and then she was pregnant, and, you know, she has her daughter now, and it's it's a worry. Like, parents who have IBD, um, and say they start to see symptoms in their children, or what they think are symptoms anyways, because, you know, the symptom list goes on and on and on and crosses barriers a thousand times of different diseases. Um, like, what should they do? And how, how, what do they do with their child? And how much should they be advocating? Like, should they be taking the first answer? Should they be following their hunch? Like, no, I think something's yeah. going on here. So the, a child who has one parent with IBD does have, we estimate about 10 to 15% chance that they will at some point Higher, so 10 or 15 percent chance more, or just 10 or 15 percent um, chance of developing higher than like standard. Uh, so it kind of depends okay. on your background, everything else, right? But if you have two parents that have IBD, you have higher. It was like 30 to 40 percent chance. So it doubles it essentially. Right. So you gotta have, um, yeah, go with your gut feeling, um, but also think about you know if there's a whole bunch of kids that are sick at school and your kid's one of them right and your kid gets better there's just like everybody here. else then it, maybe that's like some virus that happened at school but then if the kid gets sick again but no one else is sick at school then it could be that whatever it was triggered the onset of ibd right so it, it's more like a trend or you know and, and then you go to see your gp i guess for this should should parents like this be demanding to go see a gi like should they be going to the kids you know, the specialty place for all little humans? I think initially, um, if if the GP can't figure out, like, you know, sometimes you can figure it out, just do a stool test and it turns right. out it's food poisoning or something or like that, Or if the GP's right? not doing the tests that are then, making you yeah, comfortable then enough. Usually enough. if you can get a pediatrician as well, because it is hard to get straight into, like, GI, unless it's obviously a GI right. thing. But sometimes the symptoms could be very subtle. You know, let's say some kids get... Um, a little bit of GI upset, but they get joint aches, right, or mouth ulcers. Right. So those are those extra intestinal manifestations like of IBD, right? So by itself, it may not mean anything, but together, get the suspicion is right. So definitely follow that hunch and push forward. And if your GP, if they're not doing the test that you're, you know, you want, ask them to the test. Ask for a pediatrician. Like, don't just kind of brush it off. Yeah. Well, I think that goes into the whole patients participating thing, like you said. Like, and I think that's. I think that's where the advocacy piece comes in. 
I, yeah. you know, and I know a lot of people, and we've spoken to people who haven't been totally comfortable, and they, tr- it's 100% you should trust your doctor, but I also think it's, it falls back on yourself as well to make sure that you're managing your disease, that you're following your, the medications that you're supposed, you're taking them when you're supposed to be taking them. You're doing your f- food journal or your stool journal or whatever it is, because you can't just expect, like, these doctors to just know everything no. that's going on. Like, it's impossible. And you impossible. have to be honest, because this is the one thing I realized, too. I'll ask people, like, are you taking, you know, or what medications are you taking if it's a new patient? But then, somewhere down the line, I guess, as we're talking, something pops they, up they, they, tell they you? actually tell you that they're not taking it. And they're like, oh, gosh, right? So, like, just tell me from, like, right? from the beginning, and, like, and if you like, weren't just comfortable. Because like, well, I've been guilty of that myself. Like, I mean, I had problems with um, one of the injection meds that could freak me out. And, like, it was so painful, and I, I just couldn't take Decide, it, right? Yeah. And all it took was I just had to tell them. And then he switched, they, they switched me to the self-syringe, where you can control the uh, speed of injection. Absolutely. I've done and both, too. Like, no, I've done the, right? like, auto-injector right. and the syringe. And then, and then same, I was on methotrexate, too, the last things I was on. And I, and I was doing the needles, because um, I think the thinking still is that if you have Crohn's and stuff, like, injection is, you absorb it better. Right. But anyway, I told him, I said, I cannot inject myself like this. It just won't go through my skin. I don't know why. And then, like, I was so scared to tell him that because here I am, a doctor, and I can't even inject myself. Like, what? <laughs> so I told him, and he just switched me to oral meds, right? So it's like all it takes is to, to actually say uh, why. Because, I mean, the doc- yes, like, as a doctor, I don't know why you, the patient, is not wanting to take whatever. Right. right. And it could be like, as simple as, yeah. It could be like anxiety. It could anxiety, be pain. Like anxiety of, pain of, of the needles. Then, Which is a real thing. And that's very important, right? Yeah. So that's, that's why it's so important to have, I think, that participatory part. So do you, do you think, like I know we, I mean, previous episodes and stuff, and I'm a big advo- advocate of, I think that chronic illness, specifically IBD, should be dealt with holistically. Like this needs to be a holistic approach. It's not just let's treat your intestine and the rest of you will be fine. You know, um, so I'm assuming in this P4 medicine, like that kind of takes into that consideration. Because if a patient is coming into you and saying, like, I'm having this anxiety, I'm having this stress that, you know, it's affecting my mental health, that's something we have to deal with. You have said yourself, you know, for you, stress is your, that's your flair. It's my flair. Yeah. It's my flair 100%. Report yeah. card time, I'm moving, moving diet change changes of season, or whatever. Change of season yeah. when the when Mother Nature decides to do what she does sometimes, and one minute it's minus 16, and the next it's plus 16, and I'm in a t-shirt outside. Totally messes me up. My body yeah. can't keep up. I, you know... I'm a teacher, there's germs <sighs> and boogers and everything else yeah. in my space, you know? And you see, pe- you're a doctor. There's people coming in and out of a hospital all the time. Yeah, and it's, it's different for each person. Like, I mean, even scientifically, we don't know exactly, like, why one person can, they can travel or eat stuff and nothing and happens, fine. right? But for another person, if they, if they so much as eat something different than what they're used to, so something happens, right? And... I think that's something that all the scientists that are studying IBD and stuff are trying to study more. Because if we can understand that, if we can understand what triggers some people to flare and other people not to flare, or what triggers some people to go into remission, whereas that same trigger could make someone else flare, then we might be able to find better. And you know what? I think, honestly, the, the best way to have a breakthrough with that is actually going to be when you have partic- you have patients who are fully participating, they're 100% taking part because... If they don't start, if they don't start figuring out on their own, 
yeah. what causes them to flare, or if they don't bother to pay attention to that and they're just gonna wait until the blood in the stool yeah. occurs or the ulcers in the mouth, like that's not that's not gonna help anybody. Right. Like we yeah. have to be actively involved. We have yeah. to be actively involved in our healthcare. And I have to be honest, when I was first diagnosed, the first three, four years of my diagnosis, because it's been 11 years now, um, the first three or four years of my diagnosis, I didn't have the confidence nor the knowledge to do any of this stuff. Mm. I was just rolling along from one doctor to another, taking the medication I was supposed to take until it stopped working, taking the next medication. And, but then it, it took a, a it took a terrible flare that put me in the hospital for a long time. And then I would say it was about two or three years, three years of my life where I was in and out of the hospital every five, six weeks. Wow. Yeah. And staying minimum 10 days each time I went in. And it wasn't until that point that I was like, like I'm, I've hit rock bottom and this mm -hmm. is bullshit. Like I need to start being better for me. And then the food journals and right, yeah. being honest with my doctor about, yeah, I actually did not take my pills on Thursday Very morning. So, like, you know, when they'd say, have you skipped me? No, haven't skipped, take them religiously doc every day. I don't ever oh, forget. That's, that's actually one of the most common triggers for flaring. Like the inconsistency. People are not taking their meds yeah, and then, inconsistently. And not talking about that or not being responsible enough at myself as a patient to make sure that I'm taking those meds when I'm supposed to making it a priority I know it sucks and it's it sucks it sucks having IBD sucks like it sucks, it sucks. doesn't it it does it, suck it totally sucks and you have to adopt a new normal and that new normal has to be you have to take care of yourself you have to make priorities however to, to you know like Having IBD sucks for sure. However, but I realized along the way, like, yeah, we meet people. So I met you. Yeah. Right? I, meet, I meet, like, and that I learned about that Eric person from the vegan ostomy. Vegan ostomy. Like, like, there's a whole community out there that you you can learn from and, and meet people. Um, and I think that exists in a lot of other different chronic disease things. Of course. Things. And I think that's very helpful that, that people are so patient, so people who have whatever illness advocate for themselves, right? And, and if you and don't start advocating for you yourself, know, you're never gonna find those doors. Exactly. Those doors will never open for right? you. If you don't if you don't try to learn more about your own illness so that you can understand it and understand all the tests that are ordered or the medications that are given to you and you know what works for you or what doesn't work, then it doesn't it doesn't work because you'll you'll go from doctor to doctor or emerge to emerge and then different people will say you need to do this you need to do that and whatever and you'll read and on the if internet I got, if i got a right. dime for every time the doctors <laughs> told me to do this and then this doctor over here told me to do this and right. this walking clinic told me to do this because they don't they don't know your whole history they don't know, my history. They don't know your disease as i can't well, blame right? them they're so, treating what they know and if you don't know your own disease or you don't advocate for yourself and you go ahead and take whatever antibiotic they gave you when really you didn't need hurt. antibiotic maybe the antibiotic made it you know then triggered c death and then whatever well i've had an antibiotic so, kick me into a flare yeah like, so it changed your microbiome probably and yeah, then caused absolutely. something right? so so that's why if you don't know yourself like what your illness is and and you know as much as you can understand about it yourself and then you're going to be pulled into all sorts of different directions and I just you know, think it's a road not of not right being way. healthy. You're not going to be going down a road of being yeah. So speaking of patients, like what advice do you give to newly diagnosed patients? Like what would you say to them? 
because I was not, I did not follow the right road. I don't think you followed the right road either. You didn't even tell people. I did not tell people. I I went to Dr. Google. What a mess. I was dying. Like, it just. So it is scary to be diagnosed with anything. um, Especially chronic. Yeah, especially anything that's going to be chronic and has no cure. And, like, you might have surgery down the road. But I think it's the, the first advice I would have is definitely talk to your closest friends if you have anybody friends or relatives you need, yeah, you need relatives. to open up to someone you need somebody to be there to understand um, and help support you um, and make sure that you like you build your network or your support network of people they don't have to know everything about the disease they just have to be able there to support Absolutely. your mental state and, and even stuff. if this is an online community like I know Crohn's and Clays Canada has that's, like a gutsy yeah. peer support program and that's good too to just read up about it absolutely right? and see that oh you know you're not the first you're not the only person that has gone through this right there's other people who have gone through this and, try to and deal with the mental and emotional shock yeah and it. that you can get over this and you can be stronger for it and then take what you can from it and then turn it into something positive right um, I know it's very hard to think about doing but you, you can like you just, just try to, to do it eventually put it yeah, in your plan and then of read up about stuff too so you know for any chronic disease like i said it's important that the person that's diagnosed with it the patient understands it the best they can like you know make sure you understand all the tests that will be done or have to be done and medications and stuff because the worst thing that can happen is if you refuse to see a doctor afterwards or refuse to do any of the tests because you're scared and you're scared and worried because you didn't you ask understand, the questions you should have asked. you didn't understand, right? And, and that's, that's the thing that is really hard. A doctor can only do so much. Like, we can only help so much. But if a person then tells us, well, I don't want that scope, or I don't want this, and I don't want this, and I don't want this, Your there's hands only are tied. so much we can do, right? Yeah. And then, but then if you get down to it, and they say, well, I don't want that, because last time I had a scope, I woke up in the middle of it. Well, then we'll just get it anesthesiologist to help with sedation Absolutely. right or someone will tell us well last time I took that medication and I broke out in hives and whatever then we then we know okay well then we do not give you that type of medicine. so definitely you're like newly diagnosed and this is probably advice not just for newly diagnosed people this is for anybody with IBD but you have to be open communication with your doctor you need to find a doctor yeah. that you're comfortable with and then you have to openly communicate with them yeah. about your fears do you encourage patients to ask questions yes like do not bring so Bring a list of questions. That's the best thing, actually, to come. Write them it's down. It's actually best to come prepared for the clinic visit because we only have so much time because we have to see so many patients. It's not like we wouldn't want to spend like forever, but right. we have other people waiting to see us. So if you come in with, and especially if you're um, new diagnosis too, like come in with all your symptoms that you had or, or whatever that your led, stool you know, book, leading your food to diary, this, you know, all other medications you're taking, prescription, non-prescription, if you smoke or do drugs, like. Just, just, just say so. Like, We're not calling the cops. You know, just tell this one's so sweet. Tell. Get her out of here. Yeah, there's <laughs> certain medications that we can't give if you're, you know, taking whatever. There's one, one antibiotic, for example, that you shouldn't drink alcohol with because right, it makes you horribly sick. Right? Of course. So just tell us, right? And tell us about your life, what you're doing. So you know, going to school or not going to school. Don't pretend what? that you go to the gym four times a week. Yeah, when because you really never because go at what all. we do actually sometimes is affected by what the patient tells us. Well, actually, always. So. Let's say we want to do a colonoscopy, and the patient says, well, no, I can't because this is my job. If I, if I take a day off, I lose my job, or something like that, then we have to help. We have to say, like, can I write a letter to your employer, or, or how can I help you to get the tests and the treatment you need? Like, right. I have a Can patient, we work around your schedule yeah. somehow? Like, and it's actually, and this is why I want to advocate more to, like, employers and stuff. I had a patient, when I was in Edmonton, this poor guy said to me, to Dr. Wong, like, 
oh, that drug that you said you want to put me on because he failed this other one, he had to go for infusions. And so he told me, he said, I cannot afford to take a day off every eight weeks. Like, I'll be fired. And then I said, oh, okay. I said, um, what if I wrote your letter? Like, will that help? And he said, no, like they were already mad at me for this other drug. So we had to work around it. And find, find a clinic that's Saturday Yeah, you either find a evening. clinic that works close or open at night or something or weekends, or you find another drug that's like an injection drug they can do or something. You got to work with right. w that person. And, and so if the patient and doesn't tell the doctor what concerns them or, or their fears or the lifestyles, then it's not going to be... Uh, beneficial. Because, and a lot of times know. when people have issues about that, they they'll quickly to blame the medical system, the healthcare teams. But it's like, okay, the, the first question I always say, well, did you tell them? Yeah. Like, did you ask? Yeah. Well, no, but, but well, then, so yeah. why are you even having this conversation with me right now? Yeah. Like, don't be ridiculous. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> okay. hurt to ask. Like, it may, maybe there is no after-hours clinic or right. whatever. Maybe but, the answer is, but, you know, this is not going to work. So this, but you've is. disclosed that information. Yeah. And, it's, there's been an effort there to try and rectify the situation. Yeah. So you have to be comfortable, like, bringing that up to your doctor, I guess. You know, being able to be open. Yeah. Um, to that. Yeah. <sighs> Dr. Wong, you're awesome. I'm so glad that you've been here. And I, you know, and I, we just, to say Eric from Vegan Ostomy is like, we got Dr. Wong here, who is very impressed with your post post op, eight weeks keep post up the op. Good work. <laughs> yeah, keep up the good work, and I think it's absolutely fantastic what you're doing. Like that aside, like you're you're going back to work. Yeah, you're going back to work. You know, and I don't know if your yeah. patients know why you've been away or not. No, they're not. But you know, being you're a, a doctor who has IBD, who has just had surgery and is now going back to work. Like this is. That is so noble and heavy. Like I look up to you. Like this is oh, fantastic. I look up to and you for putting this, on this. This, this is series, just like like I'm in awe. And especially what you're doing for women in IBD. And I am. It's one of the reasons why I do this podcast is because it's it's therapy for me. It really is to sit down and talk to people, to talk openly about my disease and not be ashamed, to not be embarrassed. But it also gives me hope that you know. Yes, it totally sucks having IBD, but I've been diagnosed with the disease at a great time in a great country. And I am so hopeful and people like you who are doing what you're doing and you're pushing the boundaries, you found a gap and you're like, no, there is a hole here and I'm going to do something about it. Yeah. And I've heard you say more than once in our podcast and outside of our podcast about, you know, I want to change that. I don't like it and I want to change that. And it's so amazing to hear because I say, I don't like this and I want to change it, but it's just little me patient and I can't do it. But you and I are. feel like you're on the inside and I'm like, yes, she's one of us. <laughs> yeah, but you are changing things just by having this podcast and yeah, getting the like, word and out Lisa there, Yeah, right? like Lisa said, it's like you're the president <laughs> and you have the condition as well. Like you're, you're a customer and you're the, so it's, it's been so enlightening to have you here. And I know that our, our listeners are just going to absolutely love you and everything you brought to the table. And I wish you the best of luck in your practice and in your healing and in your journey. And I hope that we stay connected outside of this, you know, you know as friends, because it's, it's even emailing you the last little bit. I've been like, okay, this is great. Like, <laughs> so it's been really fantastic. Thank you for giving us your time and journeying here eight yeah. weeks post-surgery yeah, no, <laughs> and we hope that we've made you comfortable <laughs> but good luck when you go back to work thanks um and i hope your patients are kind to you and if not you just need to tell them what's going on disclose that information so strength and positive thoughts to you thank you, thank you.